Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. I'm delighted to have Jenny Radcliffe, who is a self-styled human engineer and runs the company Human Factor Security. Jenny, would you mind giving the audience a quick one to two minute introduction to who you are and what problems you fix? Hi, Marcus. Yeah, first of all, just to say, really pleased to be on the podcast. My company specializes in the human side of security. So human weaknesses, human error, responsible for 80 to 90%, depending on which stats you look at, of security breaches that expose the whole company to financial and reputational damage. So what we do is we profile individuals, we do investigations, we simulate criminal attacks on businesses in order to expose those weaknesses, and then we educate to correct them, educate the workforce, and so on. I also speak extensively on the topic of social engineering and human hacking globally because it's recognized now as one of the problems that businesses have. They tend to address the technical side and the digital side of their protection, but often neglect the people side, which is the biggest risk. This is one of the things that really fascinates me about where people's attention is really focused. What I don't understand is why people would spend millions and tens of millions of pounds on cyber security and IT and infrastructure and firewalls and all that kind of stuff. And they spend next to nothing on the single biggest threat to their business. What is it that drives people's thinking from an emotional perspective as to why they spend the money on that rather than on the human side? I think it's because humans are more difficult to get a hold of. So you can't, there isn't a one size fits all solution to it. And it's not something you can just throw money at. You need to throw time and focus at it and really let sort of learn to understand your people. And that's more difficult to do than to buy a piece of kit or a technical solution and kind of plug it in and say we're covered. So I think it's a more difficult problem. It's a more long-term solution that they're looking for because really we're looking at behavioral change and that makes it a difficult thing to scope and a difficult thing to fix. So it's just a harder problem, which is why it persists. This is really interesting because, I mean, given the changes in regulation with GDPR, meaning that I think it's 25 million or 4% of global turnover for every breach that you're found out on, you'd have thought that they'd have maybe put a little bit more effort into ticking that particular box. So if they've ticked all the boxes in terms of technology, but they haven't ticked the boxes in terms of human error, does that still leave them exposed? Yeah, massively, because... It's actually quite a grey area in terms of security of insurance and everything else. You've got to be shown to put your best efforts to protect data and information that companies hold. But what social engineers will look to do is have someone on the inside, particularly complicit in the con. So essentially we're con artists. I do that from an ethical point of view. But what a malicious social engineer would do, we look to get someone on the inside contributing to the breach of the company. It's so much easier to get someone on the inside to let you in than to go through all the technical kind of hoops to break their security. So I guess it's still something that's a gray area in terms of how you can explain what you did to cover it. And it's still something that's being tested when these large breaches occur as to how liable the company is from preventing insider threat insider mistakes or a malicious insider contributing to the business. Can you define what you mean by social engineering? Because you've mentioned the term a couple of times, 
and I'm sure the listeners are interested in what it actually means and encompasses. Yeah, I mean, I think people are often familiar with the term hacker, but often when we think of a hacker, we think of a technical hacker, a computer hacker. Usually we have visions of, you know, some young man usually sitting behind lots of computer screens in a black hoodie, Mr. Robot style, using black magic to get into people's systems. So a social engineer is still a hacker with the same aims, same criminal aims. But what a, what a people hacker does and what a social engineer does is we manipulate people in order to gain access either physically to premises um, and tech and equipment or finance, but also manipulate people to enable access through digital or other means. So a social engineer is effectively someone who hacks people with the same aims of theft, business disruption, reputational damage as a normal hacker. So it's a hacker without the tech. About 18 months ago, I came across a case. I, I think I read about it or one of my clients told me about it. And the CEO was going on a buying spree looking for acquisition targets. And he went off and the CFO received an email saying transfer £5 million. And the CFO did because it came from the CEO. And it turned out that they'd been fished. And so could you explain a little bit about how phishing schemes work and the kind of risks those pose? Because they couldn't claim back their £5 million. It was gone. It had disappeared somewhere into Eastern Europe. And I believe the breach had originated about nine or 10 months before. Yeah, I mean, I've worked on lots of those as well. I mean, what we would do, there are two types of phishing emails. So a phishing email is an email that incentivizes the person who receives it to take action in a method that wouldn't be beneficial to themselves or the company. So we always call to action an phishing email. It's a click on the link, open an attachment that enables access to the system from uh, remotely and maliciously. The problem is, is that I think a lot of people think of phishing email as those types of, you know, I've got five million pounds, the Nigerian prince scams, those types of things. People think they can spot them. But for the bigger bounties, for the bigger targets, like the one you're talking about, we would do something called a spear fish, which is a much more personalized and constructed email. And they often take a long time. So just to give you an example, we worked on a case where there was an organization and for nine months, there was a lady in accounts talking to a customer on the end of the phone and they were talking about Easter eggs and holidays and that she didn't get on with her boss very well and so there was a lot of rapport building going on so it's a long con it's a slower con so that on the morning when they when her contact that she had no reason to doubt got her to transfer funds through from the company account into the uh, rip account which she did and then it was there same same as it's your case for just a few minutes before it disappeared. She had no reason to doubt them. So a spear phishing email is more common, especially when it's larger amounts of money. And what we're really looking for is something that is very personalized to the target's personality. So linguistically, in terms of pressure points, emotionally, that email will be much more targeted towards the person who receives it in order to make sure that they click. So the way I teach it is that we get one shot at that spear phishing email so it's got to be a shot that hits home. So it's a much more cleverly constructed attack and therefore a lot less difficult, a lot more difficult to identify. It sounds to me like there's a lot of groundwork that goes in before they send that spearfish email then. That's the telephone conversations, it's building up trust, building up personal information, all that kind of stuff. What else do they do in terms of background and maybe looking at social media 
looking at behavior, bank accounts, family, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of emails that just play the percentages. There's plenty that go out. If you send a phishing email to 10,000 people, someone will click. But the ones that we're talking about and the level my company operates at is a far sort of higher, more researched scheme. What we do is we profile an organization. So we'll get a target organization just to say, again, this is ethically done. We're hired to do this, to replicate the attack. But we would look at an organization and look at its culture, look at how what, things like how they respond to authority, how they celebrate things, how they punish. And we look at that organization and we profile the culture of the organization. Then what we do across social media and other things is we look for people who are chatty. So we build up profiles of probably a dozen, six to a dozen people and start looking at where they stand in the organization, what kind of access they can enable. And then we're profiling them particularly. So we'd look at everything that's out there in terms of what we call OSINT, which is open source intelligence. Plus we have some tools as well that are security based that help us. And we would be looking at everything from what that person fears, what that person aspires to, their work history, their education, their social history, their family. We look at all of those things so that we have a really rich picture of the people in that company before we reach out and make contact with them and start to build rapport. And I'll give you an example. We had one guy in particular who was a CEO and he was a ghost on social media. He didn't use it. I've met him since. I liked him. He, he drank, he smoked, he womanized, he gambled. He was my kind of man. <laughs> uh, but he wasn't on social media. So we were trying to get an angle to get to him. And to do that, we got to his secretary and his wife rather than him. So his secretary, we found that she was, she was on Pinterest of all places. And her hobby was knitting cupcakes, which is a thing, Marcus, if you didn't know. But it tells us a lot about her that fitted her job. She was meticulous. She was detail-driven, a solitary individual. In the end, we didn't use that, but that's the level of detail we'd go to. And then what we look to do is find an angle that's going to hit that person, usually emotionally. Uh, So we have several sort of emotional and psychological levers that we pull in order to make sure that that person's kind of reeled in. So all the sort of fishing metaphors that you get in security is really because we're, we're reeling them in. So yeah. a fish past the net, spearfish, it's one fish in particular. And if it's a CEO or a director, we call that whaling. Okay, excellent. Are there any high-profile examples of whaling attacks that are in the public domain? So I think, I mean, specifically, we wouldn't be there. I'm, I'm not someone who's going to name names on these things, but what you'll find is... For a lot of the security breaches that are out there, as I say, 80 to 90% of them are human error anyway. And very often that's a key individual in the organization who's been targeted in this way, profiled over a long amount of time. We would look at hitting all of the network or certainly key people in the network so that that person is unaware and not warned when the attack takes place. I'm really curious from my audience's perspective because... I'm trying to appeal to CEOs and people involved in sales, channel sales, and so on. I'm really interested how you can apply this kind of people hacking to the recruitment process to be able to analyze uh, potential key hires and also looking at vulnerabilities in terms of your own board or senior executives. So have you done any work in that sort of area? Oh, yes. I mean... (laughs) 
One of the things that I'm often asked to do is to look at candidates for senior positions. Yeah. Uh, and just to give you an example, there's an organisation a few years ago who were recruiting actually human resources, a global HR director. Yeah. And for them, they have three key people on the shortlist, one internal and two external. And what they asked us to do, and again, all legally, was to see if we could find anything that just gave them a, a better angle as to the individuals involved. Now, open source intelligence is free and legal, usually free, but always legal. But what we can find through that type of intelligence is whether there are any affiliations to political groups or if there's been any loose comments in that person's past. And so what that does is that tells you, you know, you get the public. So it's, it's kind of like when we profile people, when we look at people, you'll see their public face. So, you know, the Sunday best at interview and, and they'll say all the right things. But then when we start to dig deeper and look underneath that kind of mask, what we often find underneath it is things that they perhaps wouldn't say at interview were actually there. And what we found with one individual particularly was a lot of sort of very misogynistic comments, not hidden particularly if you knew where to look. So these weren't behind any kind of security walls, but certainly leaned a lot towards a dislike of women and women in the workplace and those types of things. So from a recruitment point of view, we can certainly do a lot of research on the person's background beyond the obvious, I think, that, that, that we'd normally find. And then once we have that data, it's a psychological exercise. We can sort of build a profile. Now, what we don't do is say what someone's like. What we do is we present evidence and we present what we've got and then give probability and some cues for questioning an interview that will make that person come out and defend what they've said or deny it. And in that, for these very expensive positions for organisations, it's very important they get the right person and that they see how that person handles evidence that comes up. And there's the right questioning techniques, which is something we teach as well. So the right sort of questioning and profiling techniques. So that eventually that person usually comes out and tells and explains what's gone on in the past. So I think from what you said, it's very important to know that there are ways that we can do this legally or to get the person, to bring the person into that beyond their Sunday best, if you like, into their hangover state. Okay. Well, there are a couple of really interesting points that come out of this. One is, can you forensically look at interviews, if they've been videoed and with their consent, can you then look at the um, responses that candidate is giving in order to be able to identify whether or not there's an aspect that maybe they're not necessarily telling the truth or there's some point of interest that warrants further investigation at future interviews. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that kind of analysis is we go across lots of different channels. So there is non-verbal cues, uh, facial expressions, body language, but it's also in the words that they say and the um, latency period for responses. So once we analyse, if we get those initial uh, filmed interviews through, I have a team of associates, uh, some of whom are experts in, in facial coding and those types of things. And what we look for is signs of credibility. So we don't look for deception necessarily as a lie detection uh, tool, but we do look for how credible a story is. And we give uh, coaching to the interviewing team as to what to do next. So People are very comfortable at a baseline level talking about things like the weather, the football, the traffic. But then when we see hesitancy, we see signs of discomfort or stress, then what we can do is we talk to them about either increasing that pressure or letting that pressure come off and then looking for the reactions. What will happen is people will have tells if they're trying to conceal or avoid information and that's what we can pinpoint. 
Well, this is really interesting. I, I know that you've done quite a bit of work with Ekman. And one of the things that came out from the training that I did with them was that if within seven seconds of asking the question, there are two or more points of interest, then what you do is you investigate further. And I'm really curious about what these points of interest might be, are these cues that tell you, well, hang on a second, there's something that needs further investigation. Yeah, I mean, it's the way people respond to questions, particularly. So, you know, do they avoid the question? Do they answer a different question? Do they change the topic? Do they have what we call a halo statement? So, for example, we would say, someone, you might say, well, you know, did you ever have a disciplinary action? Whether or not that came to anything. Was there ever a time when your judgment was questioned and it went to, to a serious level in the organisation? And instead of answering no or possibly or, or explaining it, they'd say something like, you know, I've got 13 years clean service or, or I've got 10 people who can verify me. And what they're doing is putting themselves in a good light. We call it a halo statement. So they're not really answering the question, but they're telling you how great they are and how virtuous they are. So there are red flags, but it's different for everyone. And so it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's, you have to baseline people's behavior and people's responses and understand how they feel in a particular situation in order to then look to see what might be deceptive or why they're... I mean, we can never really say why someone's avoiding a question. All we can do is mark that data and then point to further questioning to perhaps reveal what's going on. Certainly in my experience, I think people tend to leak the truth rather than the lie. And they have a tendency to demonstrates you know, a, a slight a shrug when they're meant to be firm in their resolve or they let a little smile go that perhaps is inappropriate, but it, it happens very quickly. What I'm also really interested in is, in my experience, certainly for sales positions and senior positions, you should put the candidate under pressure because the person you will end up with is the person they become under pressure. And I'm curious how you can identify those areas where they may crack, because a salesperson who's put under pressure by someone who's more senior in authority, for example, and then starts to run their mouth or give unilateral and unnecessary concessions can be a massive liability. Can you help in terms of uh, identifying those kinds of vulnerabilities? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that salespeople do a lot is they're very good at pre-kind of rehearsed presentations. So one of the things we're looking for is someone who's going to go straight into sort of a, a more or less pre-prepared speech and the signs of the sort of smoothness of that. You can see when people are sort of saying something verbatim, something they've said many times before. And so what we, let, what, what we would teach and what we would look to do is put interrupters in there. So it might be that we ask them to, you know, to go into more detail on aspects of the story that particularly if we suspect that this is something that's being elaborated on and kind of embellished. And the halo effect as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, you know, a bit more about that and tell us a bit more about this aspect of it. So we tend to rehearse the story from start to finish. We can interrupt that timeline, make people move backwards and forwards. And people who are telling the truth and when the facts are on your side, what will happen is if you ask someone, for us to elaborate on a minor detail, they'll remember that minor detail because it happened. If someone's giving you a rehearsed, kind of very smooth speech, when we focus in on those minor details, suddenly everything changes because it's not really true and it's not rehearsed. And there's so, what, dissonance. Yeah, there's dissonance and there's 
it sort of overloads them cognitively. So lies, deception, take a big toll on your brain. And so in that moment, and it's the same way hacking works, in that moment when the emotions raised a little bit, in this case, stress, when the stress levels have gone up, then what we do is, is we keep pushing that and, and, and push that stress and their decision-making capacity goes down, their emotional level is up, and then more and more pressure under that will give what you said, which is leakage. So either there's a lot more hesitancy, there's a lot more, depending on what, what stage of stress they're in, stress is a symptom of fear. And so we can push them in fear to either be in, in, in freeze mode or flight mode and just see how those different things manifest. So you'll see if someone's under a lot of stress and then how they handle that stress. And particularly in this case, whether they handle it honestly, so whether the type of person who, who tries to fill in and elaborate and talk about something they're not sure of, which I presume is not desirable necessarily, or someone who says, you know, we're gonna, I'm not sure about that or I don't remember that, and gives a sort of more credible response. So you'll see someone under pressure with the right questioning techniques fairly quickly. Really, thank you for that. A really powerful question as well is, Jenny, that's a really interesting story. Do you mind running it backwards and get them to tell the whole story backwards? Because that creates a massive amount of cognitive overload because they're having to go all the way to beginning and then all the way through and then back again. That's a really fantastic filter. Yeah, because we rehearse our, our, our narratives start to finish. And if, they, and if they are not strictly true, or if they're massively elaborated, it's quite hard to remember that. So you'll get the hesitancy in the pauses. But if it's real, then it, it causes less interrupt, just, just generally speaking, even though everyone's an individual, just because you, you can run a story, you can run something that's happened to you or something that you're very knowledgeable about and in any order because you know it. But if it's fabricated in some way, it's harder to do. When I was in recruitment, I was trying to fill a vacancy for a big enterprise software vendor. And this candidate came through on paper. He was brilliant, interviewed really well. But something didn't quite sit right. And I asked him to go backwards. And actually digging, it turned out that the guy had taken the inbound inquiry and someone else had closed the sale. Now, it was a £17 million sale, so he was right in the sweet spot. Unfortunately, it wasn't him that did it, it was someone else. So you've got to watch it because salespeople, the one thing they can sell is themselves. I, I told you earlier, you know, I had a client who uh, hired a guy, this must have been 10, 15 years ago, for 90 grand. And he said that was the last sale that he ever did because for a year he never sold another thing. And they eventually got rid of him. But the 90 grand was the cheapest part of the cost because the guy was on a two million pound target. So they were two million down, they were a year behind. The 90 grand pet they paid him and the 30 grand or whatever it was that they paid the recruiter paled into insignificance because when you take into account the lifetime value of all the customers that they should have done, that was probably a cost. Yeah. And I mean, it's, a lot of the time it's, in the, it, it's the words and the exact words that people say. So a good example of this I always give it is uh, I often comment and I'm asked to comment on heist films and films with cons and con artists in because... Obviously, we're in a position to do that. And there's a scene in a, in a movie called Ocean's Eleven <laughs> where protagonist asks his ex-wife about a current relationship. And he says to her, does he make you laugh? And what she answers is, he doesn't make me cry. Now, it's a massive flag because she's not answering the actual question. In fact, she is really answering the question. Yeah. But what we know is that she's avoiding it and that's an uncomfortable subject. So it's all about 
people really will tell you the truth if you know how to observe. It's like Sherlock says to Watson, most people see, but they don't observe. And in security, we say the same thing. People are asleep. So you're looking for a certain thing in that um, recruitment context. You're hearing everything you want to hear. It's actually then quite difficult to pick up on those sort of little verbal ticks and movements and kind of sidesteps. And if someone's very smooth and rehearsed, there are really deep, indicators both in their language and in their body language that we can look for and that's what we do we pinpoint the things that perhaps most people wouldn't see so jenny this brings me on to the next subject which is negotiation do you get involved at all in helping people to prepare for important negotiations either at a governmental level or corporate level i think negotiations are really about playing the man rather than the cards so do you get involved in negotiation training? Yeah, so we, I have a, a small group of corporate clients that we take through advanced negotiation skills training. Now, the type of training that we do is all, or, or, we sort of have five areas that we look at. So we look at strategic and tactical stuff. So the strategic side will be every, all the kind of research that we just spoke about, funneling it right down to, from the company in the marketplace all the way down to the people involved. And then we teach people to think on their feet. But I think what I'm known for in the business is the psychological side of it. And how we really pinpoint the moves that people make and how to get to the heart of who they're negotiating against. So we bring it down to quite a personal level. And we've done that for, as I say, I have a few corporates, some uh, governmental and law enforcement clients as well. But what we really teach is a really deep understanding of the opponent and of what we're trying to achieve and how we do it in a clever way. So I always say this is not hitting someone over the head. It's an elegance of approach. We're not trying to really fool anyone, but we aim that when someone, when we've taught someone to do this, that they go in with this very kind of elegant way of handling what's going on so that they understand what that person's moving towards and against on quite a deep psychological level. So we, we put everything that we use in the people hacking side and the security side and apply that to the commercial or crisis context so that the person at the end, at the other side, we understand fully and we understand what their motivation might be and then different ways that we can draw that out. So it's what um, a lot of my clients call it the, the Jedi stuff. It's the black magic. We don't really see that being taught many other places, but those are the things that from a people point of view will close those deals. I guess what we do as well as we prepare teams, so they might have a specific negotiation to, to go to. We put them through the training, but there's, um, we give them cues to look for and prearrange uh, breaks, signals, and that type of thing so that we can actually feed in live to a negotiation. So we might say, right, completely comfortable talking about this, get them back on this topic, keep them on the topic, and don't allow a break. So it's pretty evil, which I know you'd appreciate, Marcus. But it's pretty evil. <laughs> more about win-win. So we'd say, oh, I don't, I hate win-win. I don't talk about win-win. It's bollocks. <laughs> win-win, right. When you say win to someone, what they hear is lose. So if you say day, they hear night. You say black, they hear white. They say win, they hear lose. And to be honest with you, what I'm really interested in is objectives, is hitting our objectives, actually exceeding. And so I don't really teach it that way. I teach it as an objective, meeting exercise by any means. But what happens is, we will say, I will teach, we, we teach them to recognize those signs of stress that we were just talking about. And then 
when to keep the pressure on and not allow that pressure away and what to do with someone in that state or whether to, to control and let some of the steam off so that it calms down a little bit. And that is Jedi and evil, but it's very effective. <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, I think all's fair in love and negotiation because certainly I've got a, a chemicals client, industrial chemicals client, and one of the account directors has a particularly vicious customer whose procurement, I mean, bear in mind, she's about five foot two, very sweet, but the hard as nails inside. And she turned up on the first negotiation session because they were due to sell them some more stuff. And procurement, bless her little cotton socks, just shouted at her, we need 30%. Anyway, and so I trained her. And I said, just let them shout at you. And then at the end, just tilt your head and say, I'm so sorry. I zoned out for a moment. Do you mind saying that again? And completely flummoxed them because they they weren't expecting it. She ended up getting, I think it was 17% increase rather than a 30% reduction. So t- tiny little tactics that require you to be brave, but also enable you to control the conversation. Because I think in negotiations, we see a lot of bullying going on. Procurement in particular is vicious. Again, they're paid to do it. It's their job. I absolutely get it. But procurement's function is to stop salespeople from selling and to squeeze vendors down. So I'm curious, uh, do you ever work with procurement or only with the uh, the vendor side? (laughs) So I was in procurement for a number of years. And so I have an insight into how procurement was taught. Well, I did get out, Marcus. In fact, if ever anyone asks me what I do for a living, and I don't want to talk about being a professional con artist, I'll say I'm still in procurement because it tends to shut it down quite quickly. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I have an insight into how the, how negotiations taught to procurement people and, and what the gaps are in giving them what they do. But I have to say less and less on the procurement side these days and more and more on the sales and sort of M&A side and crisis side because I find it, it, it can be taught in a very binary way. And what we're looking for on those bigger deals is, is a more blended approach and, and, and a bigger approach. And I think it's the idea of going into war, like you say, this bullying that we can disarm. We can disarm by being, as I say, informed and smart and clever about it. And absolutely what you say, which is sort of the Harvey Specter quote, if you play the man and not the deal, you don't, we look to understand the, the person on the other side acutely yeah. and really understand what they're aiming for. And very often there's ways that most, you know, everyone in the deal can satisfy what they're after doing. But my client, what I always say, and I give some examples when I do training, but, you know, if, you, if, if I'm on your side, then I'm going to make sure that that's the top priority. And we will do that by fair means or foul. But I kind of move a lot away from this kind of bullying, exploitative negotiation style that's taught because it just isn't that effective. It's not that efficient. I wrote an article, and you can get it on LinkedIn, called PICOS, P-I-C-O-S, Satan's own procurement system. It's 120 ways that procurement people attack the identity, the who of the salesperson before you get them to the negotiating table. It's incredibly smart. It was developed by the guy who used to be the head buyer for Walmart uh, for meat. So he would negotiate with abattoir owners. So to give you an idea of the milk of human kindness flowing through his veins. And then he went to head up purchasing for the <coughs> 
It's a horrible, horrible system, which puts the procurement people at a massive advantage unless you know how to sell against it. I've only ever trained one procurement person knowingly, and he then went to become head of sales for a software company, taking money out of procurement. So I feel vindicated. So let's talk about how you can use people hacking as a manager in order to be able to better understand your people, because a manager's only functions in life, as far as I'm concerned, are to hire the best people and get the best out of them. Sometimes that means you need to block stupidity from your senior management, clear roadblocks, that kind of thing. But I'm curious in terms of how you use these skills in order to be able to identify the genuine motivations of an individual and to help them overcome their blocks. Can you give some insight into how you might do that, Jim? Yeah, I mean, we apply the skills that we use to get to people, to get to businesses in this kind of coaching sort of leadership capacity. And, and, and what, we, what we really do is, there's a lot out there about profiling people and working with staff that really only scratches the surface of what we would look into from a security perspective. So if we can move those skills over in a legal way and an ethical way, I just have to keep emphasizing that. Um, <laughs> I know I get it. Then we can do it. So, so it's really about uncovering from behavior, from responses, from observation, what really people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses are, but they're not exploiting them. So it's a very, it can be quite a difficult area. We have to explain a lot before we go in and do it because it's powerful stuff that we teach. It goes to a deep understanding of of what people really fear. So, So what we say is people are moved towards more away from what they fear or like the worst that can happen more than what they are aiming for and understanding not just the the disparity between what we might perceive as someone's goals are, but really being able to uncover them. And one of the ways I describe what we do is, I was actually asked a similar question and I said, what, what we are looking for, aside from the obvious, which is usually family uh, and, and people who are close to us, is the last thing someone would give up under torture. And so what we do is we look for that, we find a way of uncovering that and then we work with it. We also look at rapid rapport building techniques and how we really work with what people think they're doing and convincing the manager of and how we can get behind that. It's quite it's, it's, it's something that really requires a bit of demonstration rather than explanation some of the time. But that's when I get a lot of people say they're terrified, amused and, and then happy to go <laughs> to, to learn more. On that subject in that case, do you want to do some kind of rapid rapport building exercise? I'm happy to be a victim. Sorry, a, a guinea pig. So, I mean, I can just talk to you a little bit about, about some of the techniques we use. And I mean, it probably isn't that much news to salespeople, I would say. But one of the things that people don't understand is the power of empathy. So we talk about those initial meetings when you meet, a, a guest with, in this case, a prospect or someone you're going to do some business with. If you don't feel that you're naturally someone who can talk easily with someone and kind of build it naturally or... One of the things with salespeople that we've found in the past is that they think they've got this covered already, right? So I meet people every day. I do it. I'm great with people and, you know, I can put someone at ease. And really whether we kind of assess that for how, for whether their perception of what they're doing and the, the other person's perception tallies and often it doesn't. Because what happens is if you're very kind of in that sort of belief that we often say arrogance is the enemy because once, once you think that you've got this covered and you can't learn anything, that's when your technique will slip and it becomes a technique as opposed to a genuine interest in the person. 
you have to genuinely care about the person and build it. It has to come from a place of sincerity. But we talk about um, something called the SPICY system. So it's S-P-I-C-E-Y. And a lot of that's around being more interested in them than yourself. And we do that through um, initially through some small talk. So we don't start before we start. We do the small talk and we look to pace the mood and the energy of the other person. So if you can imagine, if I'm doing a pen test, if I'm going into an organisation, I need to make sure that people accept me very quickly. Sorry, um, what do you mean by a pen test for the audience? Oh, by a penetration test. So that this would be, that as a job title, gets lots of fanars and ours, by the way, when I say it. Yep. So what, what you do for a living? Well, part of it is physical penetration testing. You can imagine, Marcus, it gets a, a variety of reactions outside the security <laughs> But what we do is we physically infiltrate a site. And that would mean me going onto a site, pretending to be something that I'm not. Yeah. So I've delivered donuts um, or we've, we've gone to repair coffee machines or to measure up offices. And when we're in there, we leave cameras and microphones or we take things. But I have to make sure that when I'm on that site, when someone comes up and talks to me, that they like me and that they can identify with me quite quickly but their suspicion's not aroused. So what we have to do is we build rapport by making it more about them and making sure they stay in their bubble so that we can control that and observe it almost from the from the balcony, which is sort of what Fisher and Yuri would say in negotiations, like you, you go to the balcony, you observe it from above. So we start with that small talk and that pacing and making sure that if that person's a more quiet energy, that we're not all over them. And I think that's one of the, the, the problems I see with some sales guys is that they they are very confident. They might not match that very well with somebody perhaps isn't who's sort of more defensive. And then what we'll do is we'll look to inspire something. So it's a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of, well, you know, where we're going to take this and this is not going to be too painful. And we want to sort of inspire some confidence in them and get them talking to us more. And then the thing is, is that we look for that common ground so what we tend to do in the security space, but we do it for the fast rapport techniques, and one of the fast rapport techniques is we find something that's bothering them, something small, um, and it needn't be connected with the deal. So the common ground might be something like, oh, you know, you sound the way I feel, you know, Mondays. Oh, yeah, you know, and you get talking about that kind of a human and an ele- trying to visceral and elemental state of their being. I guess you guys probably know about Maslow and, and, and sort of the hierarchy needs. Yeah. On that first one, the one that we work on an awful lot in security and in this rapport building is that like immediate kind of psychophysiological needs. So are they comfortable? Are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Are they tired? And we find common ground, empathize with that common ground. And what this does is it moves everything away from the business point of view and creates that kind of empathy very early on. What we do then is we stay, so that's the S-P-I-C-E for empathy, and then everything goes back to them. So the Y is for you in like eight font and them in like 32 font. So we stay on them and we let them talk. And what it does is all of this puts people at their ease very quickly. It's part of a bigger system, but it puts them at their ease very, very early on. It gets them talking early on before we even start and what we tend to find in that state that's when they give you their secrets so that's when actually before I'm going to talk to you about this just want to let you know we had some guy in yesterday talking about the same thing but oh he he was a complete idiot and we didn't like him or the whole thing builds up that little relationship and that rapport based relationship before 
we do anything else. And it's a really easy technique to teach. It's a bit more complicated as everything is to do on your feet. It's techniques like that that we that we teach in our well on negotiation and our security training. Very interesting. That whole piece around using Maslow around the psychophysiological piece never crossed my mind before. But actually, that's so visceral. Just talking about comfort, thirst, hunger, all that kind of stuff. Because I've tended to shy away from that, but I can absolutely see why that's powerful. I love that a bit. Well, what we want to do is we want to get them, we want to get from the two brains. So you've got that emotional kind of older part of the brain that responds to the emotional signals that overrides something more rational. So what we want to do is bring that brain to the fore. So the brain that's like looking after their immediate needs and their emotional responses, that will wipe out the rational brain anyway, as long as it's engaged. We're going to engage that brain really quickly and make sure that the rational brain is sort of in second gear because then when we want to bring that up into third or fourth gear and get to the meat and the heart of the matter, then we're controlling that moment. Whereas if we don't sort of do this build-up first of all, and it doesn't work on everyone all of the time, it works on the majority of people the majority of the time, but even if someone sort of doesn't immediately kind of open up to you, which most people will, it does sort of get them sort of slightly off their guard and wondering what's, you know, it delays that immediate kind of business focus until you want that to come to the fore. And that's quite an important thing because when I want them cognitively capable is when I say and not when they say. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to tie this back to something that you touched on earlier in terms of psychological profiling and also referring back to PACE. We use DISC as a communications platform to get a general sense of people's preferred communication style. And a lot of salespeople are I or D uh, personality types, but they really struggle with the high C personality type. So detail orientation, appropriateness, fairness, everything in triplicate, slow-paced, complete finisher types. I'm curious, to hints and tips, because CFOs uh, have a tendency to fit that kind of profile. Any hints and tips in terms of being able to build rapport quickly with those high compliant types? Yeah, and I mean, a lot, most procurement people will tell you that they are details people. Yeah. So if I do do, and I did, I did lots of procurement negotiation training back in the day, do less of it now. It, like I say, it tends to be more the sales guys that, that want the darker side of things and the, the Jedi stuff. But what we would always say is you give, to a certain extent, you give the mark what they want. So what we want to do is we want to move the focus onto something that they actually want to hear. So if you know that you're going to be talking with someone who is details-driven and wants all the, wants all the ins and outs and the, the kind of minutiae of something, then you make sure you have a pre, something pre-prepared that gives them that food. So we feed that part of their psychology so that they're focused on that and, they, and they're comfortable with it. So, you know, we've got all this detail. We've got granularity here. So this is fine. So when they, when they demand that, we feed that. Kind of like a, an addiction, you just feed that beast. Because once that part of their brain is occupied with that, then that's satisfied. And you can always, broken record, go back to it and say, well, we've got that granularity. We can give you that granularity on whatever they're focusing on right now. And then courtesy, which is what you've just said, the idea of fairness and courtesy and kind of giving it back is, so we've given you those, if you forgive me for a minute, let's just talk a little bit of what we get from beyond that. 
So you've got this, let's go beyond that and let's think a little bit more about this piece as well. So you can kind of pull them in and out. I always talk about a kind of like conducting an orchestra. So like we have conversation management, we have it here. They want to go here. Well, we've given them what they want. They've no reason to fight it. So we never give anyone something they can push against. That's fed and the beast is quiet and then we can go on to other things. Jenny, that's really interesting. What we teach in Sandler is that uh, you fall back. You don't push against them. Because in the sale, if you're pushing against the prospect, it becomes an adversarial conversation. And all they have to do is say no, and the deal's dead. So what we do is we always fall back. It's more of a pull system rather than a pull. And what you're doing is you're encouraging them to come towards you. And you offer no resistance. So you don't get involved in a fight. Because often what you'll find is very dominant personality types or people who've been trained in negotiation will try and beat the salesperson into their emotional state. And as a result of that, they'll relinquish control. They'll Mm -hmm. abdicate control because they don't stay in their rational brain. They'll deviate from their plan. And one of the really important things that we teach is that you have to plan and then you have to rehearse and rehearse, and rehearse. My recommendation is that that every hour you are in front of the prospect, you put in a minimum of three hours of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. I would recommend for bigger deals more than that, because when you take into account how long it's taken you to get to that point in the sale, and how many prospects you had to go through in order to get there, and how many prospecting calls and conversations you had to, I think it's an act of gross negligence on the part of the salesperson and their management not to insist on that and not to execute on it. So in terms of the rehearsal process, how do you get people to work the difference? And what are the different kinds of scenarios that you get people to discuss when it comes to either recruitment or a sale or negotiation? I mean, I would agree. And preparation is massively key. I mean, the thing that makes us stand out in the security space for all the cons we pull is the time that we take and the prep that we put in. It puts us in a higher bracket in the market because there's people who can do the penetration tests and just walk in. They'll take a day to prepare and then they'll walk in. Whereas we put a crew on and we take a long time, can be months to prepare, which makes us expensive, but then we are, everything's covered. And I think the way that it, it works is that we would run through not so much sort of scripted objections but just how we can put things in different ways and how we can recognize when someone's focused on that emotional side. Because a lot of negotiation training, for example, if you take negotiation, tells you to use emotion as the lever, which is a terrible, silly thing to do. Because as much as we work with emotions, we don't want people to become emotional because we want them to be open to a good deal when it's, when it's on the table and the deal that's on the table. And we want them to be able to rationalize back to us. So I would always say what we try and do is work on the pe- on the person of our side, the person who's, who we're training, to recognise when emotions are starting to creep in and to recognise that manipulation when it's happening and to understand that we have that emotional onset and then what we do to table it back and down when it's there. It's very difficult not to respond to that type of thing, not to respond to anger and not to respond to fear. So how do you recognise when you're getting angry and how do you recognise fear? And how do we counter that? So a lot of our rehearsal, I suppose, isn't necessarily what they might say to us and how we play certain scenarios out. But it's more about the feelings and how much more difficult that is to counter. So a lot of the time, it's it's about 
I always say it's about discipline and control and how disciplined and control can be introduced into a business slash security transaction. How do you maintain that? How do we control it? And what disciplines we need? And what you're saying is true, that what we always teach is the strategic side has to be completely covered and prepared for, along with our opening statements, our responses to the potential questions, the questions we might ask. Because I guess we teach the tactical skill of really engaging that brain the entire time in the moment so that if everything strategically is covered, then how do you respond tactically and how do we behave tactically is the most important thing. And what you don't want to be doing is rooting for figures and everything else when someone's giving you a really good point to consider. Okay, that's really valuable. Tell me this, I mean, taking the discipline and control piece a bit further and getting into the habit of observing, of listening empathically, and also of getting past the noise in your own head. What are you teaching people to do to make sure that they're listening effectively, that they're observing what's actually going on? And they're not listening with happy ears and looking through the uh, world through rose-tinted spectacles. I kind of, part of this answer is probably going to sound a little bit snarky, but I hate the fact that this is taught so badly by so many trainers. It's no good saying to people you've got to actively listen and then not tell them how to quiet that head chatter. And again, it's 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 not that there's a, a magic formula for it, but it does help to have all of the your ducks in a row in terms of all of the basics and all the st- statistics and the figures on the deal. It also helps not to be trying to do too many things at once. So when we talk about the observational side of it, and, and this includes listening, it's very difficult to do that if you're if you're always waiting to get your script in. It's always difficult to do that if you're not only leading the negotiation, but you're trying to observe as well. So what we try and do from a business point of view is make sure that the, the role is clear, their objectives are clear, and that the team Ideally, I'd have more than one person. If it's an important strategic negotiation, we try and put at least have a wingman or woman in. From a security point of view, we have a wingman or woman. It's very rare. It's just me on my own. And the reason for that is that if you're going to do that job effectively, you have to be in the moment. You can't do that if you're trying to remember, if you're writing everything down. So some of it's just, I guess, tactical and operational level stuff. But the rest of it is about that confidence piece and about making sure that people are not improvising too much on the day but then no no nor are they rehearsing a set piece that they think works for everyone so it always comes down for us for knowing that target inside out knowing that person backwards and then what that means is that we just deal with what comes up in the context of the meeting and not thinking on our feet the whole time about do they mean this what does that mean for the business so really uncovering and that sort of an inquisitive attitude always getting underneath the why and not the what people are saying but knowing almost before we go in what type of person that is and what to expect this is really interesting because i teach this stuff as well coming at it from a sales perspective originally but there are two models that are wonderfully elegantly simple uh, that describe every dysfunctional broken relationship you can or will ever have and that's the drama triangle. So the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And the victim voice is, why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. And save me. Persecutors come at you with a jabby index finger, the pronoun you. You piece of shit. You always, you never, you're such a, you've ruined the whole day. And then you have the rescuer, 
who's mollycoddling and permissive and helps without boundaries or permission. And their favorite byline is, I was only trying to help. And also, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing yourself, which means they disempower their people. Persecutors create conditions where they disempower by preventing people from taking risk. So they do the minimum necessary to not get noticed. Whereas a rescuer, people will do the minimum necessary because they know their boss is going to come in and change things anyway. Now, Bruce Lee, my favorite philosopher, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And that's the winner's triangle. So instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. And instead of being a rescuer, you're nurturing and empathic. So the drama triangle version of I'm late is, it's not my fault. Bloody sat nav took me way around the houses, the road works. I was doing my best. Yeah. And you just think, us. Whereas the flip side is, Jenny, I am so sorry. It's entirely my fault. I misjudged the traffic. I left too late. You must be upset with me. I absolutely understand if you'd like me to turn around and we can cancel this meeting and I can chalk it up to experience. I hope you can forgive me. Yeah. Mm. And the advantage of doing it that way is A, it's authentic, B, it's sincere, and C, it's grown up and you take ownership. But it means you have to be fully present. The problem is if you're in the drama triangle, what you are is either stuck in the past or worrying about the future. You're worried about what people will think, what they'll say, what the consequences are, rather than taking ownership and personal responsibility. And if you mess up, just admit it. Um, But vulnerability, I'd like to finish on that note. I'm really curious. Most people think about vulnerability as a weakness. When you look at the derivation of the word, it comes from the Latin word, vulnerabilis, which means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. It's an act of courage. I'm curious how you use vulnerability in the work that you do in order to draw people in, to build empathy, to build trust. Because in my experience, if you want people to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. What do you say to that? So what we say is there's a saying in security, which is humans are the weakest link. And and it's been, it goes alongside another one, which says there's no cure for stupidity. There's no patch for stupidity. And I do a talk on the people patch, which says, why do we even try then if there's no cure? The truth of it is, is that all of us have that vulnerability to be conned, scammed, played, manipulated with the right script. If you catch the right person at the right time, we're going to con you, right? So if that's true, then what it gives us is an, it's actually quite empowering because what it means is, is that we can raise, every, by our common experience, our common vulnerability, we can raise everybody's awareness. And if, if we can all help make ourselves less vulnerable just by recognising that we're all in the same boat, that it's, there's no division between those of us who are susceptible to being conned and those of us who are not. It's just a case of who's up in front of them and what script they're given. And if they time that properly, that'll get to all of us. So the way that we use it in our work is that if, if you cannot be of tribe blame, you have to be of tribe people. And if we're of the tribe of the people, then we can work together and recognise the vulnerabilities in each other to help prevent them. At the end of the day, for, for as much as we do everything else, we are, I am in the security business, we are trying to protect people. And we'll do that by any means necessary, including admitting that we can be conned as well. People take a crack at the champ the entire time, right? So people are always trying to do it. Most of the time, I guess, you spot them. I've had people in the business 
succeed in getting my phone off me. I mean, one guy got my phone off me and took a photograph saying I socially engineered Jenny Radcliffe's phone with a very kind of sympathetic story that, that was very plausible and took a photograph. So that, that was one thing. But I guess what we say to businesses is the same thing I'd say to you. There are only two types. There are those businesses that have been hacked and those businesses that don't know that they've been hacked. So who knows, I might have already been socially engineered. <laughs> Jenny, tell me, what does your ideal customer look like? So we work mainly with large corporate clients on a global basis who need to prevent their chief financial officers, their CEOs, their CISOs being hauled up in front of authorities for information and data breaches, let alone loss of reputation and financial penalties because they did not address the 90% of breaches that are caused by human error. So they spent millions and millions on firewalls and anti-malware and digital solutions. And it's exactly like having a giant fortress with the front door locked, but leaving the side door open for maintenance to get in and deliver the bread and pick up the laundry. Our ideal customer are the type of corporations who want to prevent those breaches so that they don't end up on the news at 10, being maligned for being a company that didn't fix their human element of security. Jenny, tell me something. So much of the emphasis in security appears to not only be on IT, but on protecting financial information. Uh, And I get the importance of that. But it strikes me that there's another side to it, which is all that personal information. So travel companies protecting the names and information of families and minors, of medical organizations and pharmaceutical companies protecting patient records. And I'm curious, why is it that so much emphasis is focused on just the financial side rather than on all this other stuff, which I think members of the public and probably politicians and uh, regulators are deeply concerned with? Well, I guess the best companies are concerned with both the financial implications as well as the sort of more human side of it, because I think like with anything in security, to lose money is, is one thing, but we are talking about people's lives and what really hurts people. So I think the big, uh, you know, enormous financial penalties for breaches that, have, that could have been prevented uh, grabs the headlines and gets everyone's attention. Increasingly, people do notice and do act because they realise that there's a human cost to all of this as well, that, you know, arguably is unquantifiably large and cannot be reversed. So I think it, I think the tide is turning with the better companies. They recognise this is not just a financial uh, risk prevention exercise. It's much more than that. And hopefully that's where we're going to. It, it strikes me that this could be a significant competitive differentiator. And certainly increasingly as organisations are looking at their supply chain, this must be an issue that's going to affect whether people will even trade with you. Absolutely. And I mean, the companies that are doing the most to protect themselves are certainly looking at, you know, more secure future than those that are not. It's not just to be seen to do the right thing, it's actually to do the right thing. And that shows in organisations who are breached but have done everything they can and, and in terms of how quickly their insurance pays out and how quickly they recover reputationally. So just this week we had Mumsnet in the UK was breached 
and they quickly said to the email out that apologised, laid out the action thing we're going to take to prevent these breaches in the future, and showed what they were going to do uh, going forward to try and make sure that it wasn't just small amounts of data that was leaked, but that they were going to take more actions to protect people. Now, even though that they, they've been breached before, the general consensus in, in the security community was that that was handled quite well. Because at the end of the day, every company will suffer a breach sooner or later. But it's what we do to prevent it, and it's what we do once that happens that really separates those companies who care about their customers and their clients and their staff and those that really only tick the box in terms of awareness and prevention. And so it, it really is starting to be noticed, as you say, at all levels, governmental, in the public eye, and from a competitive sort of share prices um, and the market's point of view. Fantastic. Jenny, this has been absolute joy. I'm fascinated by all of this, and I hope that we can do this again and explore some of the approaches that you take in more detail. How can people get hold of you? So I'm easy to find. We have uh, humansfactorsecurity.com is the website. I'm on Twitter as The People Hacker, and on LinkedIn as Jenny Radcliffe. I'm happy to answer questions if people have forgotten about all of this stuff. And if anyone wants me to introduce them, you can get uh, Jenny through me. If you didn't pick up on that, if you're connected with me, then I'm happy to make the introduction. Jenny, thank you again. This has been absolutely fantastic, really very interesting, and also very apposite, given how important this is and uh, the critical nature of being aware of your own security and the vulnerabilities that your people play. Thank you very much, Jenny Radcliffe, the human engineer. Really appreciate this time together. It's been very interesting and really appreciate having you on the show. It's been great, Marcus. Thanks for asking me. It's my pleasure. I hope we can do this again very soon, and I look forward to getting together at some point to plot our domination of the world of negotiation. That's Marcus Kauke signing off on the Inquisitor podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Please share, comment, ask questions. I love hearing from you, and it's really important to me that you tell me whether or not this stuff is useful to you, If you've enjoyed this interview, I think you'll also enjoy Mark Goulston's interview with me on empathic listening and the power of empathic listening in sales and management. And also check out Mark Goulston and Jenny Radcliffe's uh, blogs and podcasts. Speak to you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye.